All right, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Judges 13. We've got time to get through everything tonight. And Numbers chapter 6. Look at that, already up there. Judges 13, Numbers 6. Those will be the two spots. You can stick your fingers in those two spots. Uh, now, normally, I don't say, you know, at the beginning, at least, I don't like to fashion myself as such a narcissist, hey, this would be a good message to take notes on. But I'm going to say this would be a good message to take notes on. There's going to be three points. They're very practical. So there's pens around. You can write in your blood if need be. Don't do that, though. Why would you do that? Why would I even say that? I don't know. There's pens somewhere, I'm sure. And you could find paper from somebody else. Uh, I don't know. I, I can't help you there. Looks like Mary has paper. Mary, your secretary. You should always have paper. Right? Is that wrong for me to say? I'm sorry. Did I hurt your feelings, Mary? Again, I'm sorry. Blessings. All right. Judges, chapter 13. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, again for this time that we have together. God, what a blessing it is to be in your word, to be together with our brothers and sisters. I pray that you would speak powerfully and practically to our hearts tonight as we study some of these things that we've learned about we've familiarized ourselves with, but maybe never taken in as something substantial and specific for our life today. I pray, Lord, that you would meet us here and that we would leave here walking maybe more closely with you, being more in love with you. And we trust all of this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Judges chapter 13. I don't know if your Bible says what my Bible says, uh, but my Bible says the birth of Samson. And it's certainly a familiar story for everyone here, I'm sure. Samson. You know, you hear it, you know it, and, uh, and you're already thinking about the end of the story before we even get started. I'm going to ask you to not do that. Right, because uh, it's, uh, it's, we're going to build a foundation for the whole story tonight. And the better uh, we understand the beginning of the story, the more we'll appreciate the end of the story once we finally get there. It's going to take a couple of weeks to get there. You all know how I can be. Um, but we're going to try and conquer an entire chapter tonight. So since that's the goal, let's get started with verse 1. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So the cycle is starting all over again. Now this is the seventh time. The cycle, of course, of sin, suffering, supplication, and then salvation, this four-part cycle that Israel is continually going through in this book of the Bible. They keep on, uh, you, you know, falling into sin, and then uh, God gives them over to an enemy. In this case, it's uh, the Philistines, and the Philistines are going to oppress them for 40 years before supplication. They cry out to God, God, save us, deliver us, you know, and God, 
What's he going to do? It's salvation. It's the last point, right? You're raising your hand. You're going to say it. I know you know it. It's salvation. He's going to come. He's going to save them. And he's going to, he's going to be faithful to them because, uh, as much as this is a book of human failures, this is a book of God's faithfulness. So we move on in verse two. Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And the angel of the Lord comes to her and, and he says, I'm going to do a work. And, and all I need in order to do this work is for you to have a baby. And it's a wonderful story that we see several times in scripture. When God wants to do a great work, he, uh, he makes sure that there's a baby that's born in order for that work to be accomplished. And he comes to this woman and she's a barren woman. And, and maybe, uh, she had lived her whole life feeling like she was a worthless woman. And this certainly would have been the opinion of the culture that she grew up in. Uh, in Israel during this time and in this place, it was, it was considered a curse upon a woman to be barren. And, and she was constantly, uh, you know, maybe just living under this impending, uh, threat that her husband was going to leave her and that she was going to be all alone and that she had nothing to offer to anyone. And, 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 and why God and why me and why this? And, and, you know, maybe you can call me naive and maybe uh, I am. Uh, to a degree, but I believe that God has a purpose for everything that he allows us to go through. You know, and, and I think that what I see in scripture supports that theory. And I think uh, Romans 8.28 is strong enough to stand up under that theory. Right? Why am I going this? Why am I going through this? Why do I have to deal with this? And, and I don't know, and I can't answer that question. But this is what I can say: is that one day, or one day, nay isn't a word, but one day we'll we'll understand it clearly. We'll see it as it was intended through God's view originally, and it could have been for this woman. Uh, maybe she was allowed to go through this. Maybe she was allowed to bear the burden of being barren uh, so that she, it would draw her closer to God. And she would learn to talk to God, that she would pray to God and learn to listen to God. And so that in listening, when God eventually did speak to her, she could hear from God. And in hearing from God, she would be obedient to God and raise the child in the way that God had intended for her to raise the child. Maybe that's the reason why she was allowed to go through this. And certainly suffering can deepen our relationship with God. It has a way of working maturity into us in a way that nothing else really can. And James chapter one supports this. I'm sure that you're all familiar with the scripture. You know, James chapter one talks about these tough times that we go through, that they set us on a course towards maturity towards perfection, you know, and, and that could be the reason why God allowed her to go through this. I don't know. It could have been that in her going through this, people would see it and they would talk about it. You know, they would say, Hey, uh, did, did you hear about that barren woman? Yeah. Let her husband leave her. Cause this is, I'm sure what they were expecting to hear about her. And you'd say, no, no, uh, she's, uh, she's saying that an angel came and talk to her. And it's like, wow, she's, uh, she's not only barren, 
but she's bonkers. And it's like, it's, uh, the, uh, this is a crazy lady here. And she's saying that an angel, and he didn't, he didn't just come to her. He, uh, he made a promise to her. He said that she's going to be pregnant. And it's like, wow, this is, uh, this is truly bizarre. She's, she's off her rocker. This woman's lost it. And, and, but, but eventually, this woman who, who wasn't pregnant, who couldn't become pregnant, who was thought to never be pregnant, and who was yet at this moment, still not pregnant, was telling people that she was going to become pregnant because an angel promised her such such a thing. And, and they would see it. And they were witness to it. And maybe even during this time, uh, when Israel was in a dark time, and they were in a dark place, they would see this woman, and they would reconsider what they knew about God. When someone stood up and said, no, the Lord's real, and he's making promises to me, and you can trust him, and you can believe in him, he's going to be faithful to fulfill what he's promised. It would have been an incredible testimony to Israel on that day, and it was a dark day that needed such a testimony. We can't be sure of why God allows us to go through these tough times. But we can be sure that God has a purpose for allowing us to go through these things. And as much as God has a purpose for us to go through these things, we know that there's an eventual end to these things. And I think that that's equally as wonderful as the fact uh, that there's n that there's a reason for me to be here it's the fact that that eventually I'm not going to be here. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, he says in verse 17 that these things are light and momentary troubles. You know, and, and I don't know what you've been through in your life. But here's a man writing this book, and you'll see in the 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians, if you go to read the book, that the things that he went through in his life... I would never, in my wildest dreams, describe as light. You know, here's a man who's been shipwrecked, beaten. Here's a man that's been whipped. Uh, here's a man that's been in prison. Uh, and, and, and everything that he went through. And he's like, it's light and it's momentary. It's momentary. It means that it's finite. There will be a time when you're not in that place or space anymore. And God's allowed you to be there for a purpose. So while you're there, it's important to ask the essential questions, why am I here? And you'll see so often that God wants to take that area that he's allowed you to be in. And this woman was allowed to be barren for a season. And God would turn that into her greatest glory and her testimony for the community. And there's a purpose for all these things that we go through. But for her, this season is over. Light and momentary, the moment's done. God says, hey, you're going to have a baby. And in verse 4, we continue. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. The woman isn't named in scripture, but you can imagine her shock, 
right? I mean, she, she went from not being able to have a baby to God having a purpose and plan for her baby specifically. And what a wonderful thing to realize as a, as a parent they, that your baby, right? And I don't have a baby, but, uh, but a lot of you do. A lot of you, your babies are here. Look at that. Two babies right there. The, the, your babies aren't a, 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 some kind of molecular mistake. They're not some evolutionary accident. It's, it's not something that just happened. They, they bubbled up out of this, uh, this primordial soup and then boom, there she is, Katrina. You know, and, and it's like, and, 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 and the best that she can do is live and die and become something useful like a tree. But this is the garbage that we're taught in school. The, the, this is the thing that we're, that we're fed, you know, in, in, in school. And, and we're educated in this manner to think that maybe, you know, we're born without a purpose and we live without a purpose and then we just, we die and we become dust and then maybe a flower and boom, flowers are beautiful. Everyone enjoys flowers. So the best I could be is a flower. No, God says, God says, I have a purpose for this child. I have a plan for this child. He's going to be a Nazarite, separated unto God. He, he's, he, he, he was created and constructed, and, and now you are being entrusted. You as a parent, this is your responsibility. You, you're being entrusted to, to watch over this child so that he realizes the potential for which he was made. And Samson uh, had a unique calling, but I don't think that Samson was unique in the fact that he had a calling. I think that this is the way that God deals with everybody. I don't think that, you know, God, uh, maybe in one in every billion babies, God says, okay, I'll make this one with something in mind. No, I think that this is just the way God is. I think that he constructs us all with purpose. You know, in Jeremiah chapter 1, a verse, again, that I'm sure you're all familiar with, Jeremiah 1, verse 5, it says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart, and I appointed you. In Jeremiah's case, it was, I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. You know, for us, and for each one of us, it's going to be different. You'd say, I appointed you to be a teacher at elementary school. I appointed you uh, to be a construction worker. I appointed you to be a student. Whatever it is God has made you, he has put in you those things for, that, that he wants to, to come out of you, that, that, that he desires to use and cultivate in and through you. He's saying you are uniquely made. You are developed with purpose. So it's not just the things that I go through in my life have a purpose. And we can celebrate in our suffering. Hey, I know that I'm here and it's for a good reason. That's funny because when I yelled, hey, some of you actually looked up. But it's like, no, th- this is this foundational. It's from the beginning before you're even actualized in the womb. He says, I knit you together and I did it with a purpose. You're here for a reason. I want you to do something. You're created to glorify the one that constructed you. And it's the same way for every child. It's not just the Samson's and it's not just the Jeremiah's. It's not just the preachers, and it's not just the prophets. There's purpose for every single one of us. So whoever you are, whatever is built into you, God put it there for a reason. He wants to cultivate it and use it for his own glory. In verse 6, 
So the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. From birth to death, the child would take a vow to not defile himself. Now, the Nazarite vow, this is something uh, that we're not very familiar with in our culture. It's not something that's practiced in the Christian culture, but it's something that would be very common in Samson's time. Uh, and we, we see the, the stipulations of the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. That's why I told you to hold a place there. We're in Numbers chapter 6. Let's start in verse 1. Number six, verse one, we read about the Nazarite vow, and it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink, neither uh, shall he drink any grape juice or eat fresh grapes or raisins, all the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin, all the days of the vow of separation, no razor, no razor, razor, shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. Then he shall uh, let the locks of his hair or then he shall, yeah, let the locks of his hair of his head grow all the days that he separates himself to the Lord. He shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister, when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord." Now, a Nazarite vow represented total separation to God. It was usually taken for a predetermined time, usually around six months to a year. It was under rare circumstances, and, and it's not often recorded, that a Nazarite vow would be taken for an entire lifetime. But this is exactly what Samson was called to do from birth, actually even before birth, from conception Throughout his entire life, unto his death, he would be set apart to the Lord as a Nazarite. And the Nazarite vow dealt with three areas of separation. These are going to be the three things uh, that, that, that I think are worth noting down for your, uh, your note-takings. Uh, the three areas of separation. The first one dealt with the appetite. First one dealt with the appetite. So you weren't allowed to eat wine or anything that was like wine or grapes. There's no consumption of alcohol during this time of the vow. So first, the appetites. Second, the appearance. I made these all A's. It's easy for notes, right? Alliteration. That's what you did. Appearance. You could not cut your hair. Right? You couldn't cut your hair. And this made men in Israel stand out, right? This is an agricultural society. So it's not the most advantageous thing for a farmer to have long hair. It's going to be in your face. It's going to be in the way. Uh, if you had long hair, people would notice it, and they would know 
that you're a Nazarite. So appearance. Associations. It's the third one. So appetite, appearance, and associations. You are absolutely forbidden from being around death. Even if it was your own family, they died during the time when you had taken the vow. Most of these, most of these vows were taken over a six month period of time. So during that six months, if someone in your family died, you couldn't be around that person. You had to keep your vow. You had taken a vow to be separated from death unto the Lord. So you just stay away from all that stuff. You know, you'd, uh, you'd let your hair grow, you'd let your hair down, you'd pass on the booze for a little while, and, uh, and you'd stay away from death. You would embrace the life and light of the Lord. That was the point of it. Now, each one of these is a, a literal uh, precept of the Nazarite vow. But each one carries a symbolic weight and importance, and that was the purpose of the Nazarite vow. I mean, you got to think about this, and it seems random and, and, and almost absurd. You know, God is giving the law to Moses, and he's like, okay, I want you to write this down, the Nazarite vow. And he's like, okay, there's going to be three things, uh, no grapes. And it's like, why? What's wrong with grapes? I don't know. It just sounds like fun. Put it in there. Uh, I, want them to, I want them to grow their hair long because I like long hair, you know? <laughs> and uh, and uh, don't go around dead bodies because they're gross. You know, it's like, no, why, why would God include this in the law? Unless it made sense, and then there, unless there was a importance in the specifics of what's being communicated through this vow. The importance is in the consideration of each one of the three. Because each one bears personal relevance to my life. And, 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 and especially as we consider this in light of our Christianity. The Nazarite vow was to draw you in to answer three fundamental questions. These are the three questions. The first one is with the appetites. What are you allowing into your body? That was the essential question that was to be considered by this first part of the Nazarite vow. It wasn't just about grapes, right? It was to make you slow down and think, what am I allowing into my body? The second one, appearance. What is being expressed through my body? Right, because it wasn't just about long hair. Your long hair was to make you think, right? What is being expressed through my body? And associations, right? It goes deeper than being around or not being around dead bodies. The question that you're supposed to ask here is, uh, is what is around uh, your body? So one, what are you allowing into your body? Two, what is being expressed through your body? And three, what is all around your body? So what are you associating with? The three essential questions. The first one, what am I allowing into my body? Right, through your mouth, yes, but also through your eyes and your ears. All your senses uh, together, they're the gateways to your body. Right, it was to make you stop and consider. It's more than just alcohol. It's a symbol for me. It's the things that I'm allowing into me that have the ability to... Change me, to control me, in some way to manipulate me. That's why alcohol was chosen as this symbol. Right? It was to make you stop and think. And, and, and to think about the effect that these things that we allow in through our eyes and through our ears, uh, to think about the effect that they might have on you. When I was working on, on this message, 
I, uh, I, I begin to realize that, that about the half hour point, which is about where we're at, there's going to be a serious deficit of illustrations. And I was like, I need to put something in here, right? This is what you do, I'm sure, right? No, no, my, um, anyways. So I'm like, there's got to be something, it's got to be something in there, like a story that I can tell. And, and I couldn't think of a single one uh, that seemed appropriate. So I'm going to choose the, the least of the, of the inappropriate ones uh, to share. Um, and that's what I try and do here. That's why I so I sift through all the all the things in my crazy brain. Um, back a few years ago, the last band I was in, it was a punk band with Eric, right? And, and most of you know Eric Flores, and and he was the lead guitar. Uh, it's, it's you know is uh we we were a terrible band, and there's a lot that I could say about the specific members of the band, but our music was just bad, and it was uh, it was really no good. Um, but it's just like no rhythm, and. Uh, and even the name, I mean, we were called Born Again, which is like, yeah, you're like, yeah, but there's, there's nothing, nothing to the imagination with a name like Born Again. There's no thought for consideration, you know, there. But, um, we, we weren't, we weren't, weren't known for our subtlety. We went for the direct approach always. Even the song Crucify Him, it's like, yeah, we're just beating people over the face. Anyways, I digress. I was in this band, we were terrible, and, uh, we would practice every Sunday after church. We would meet at Upland, we used the youth room, and, uh, we'd, we'd go up there and we'd all, you know, uh, play our sad anti-rhythmic music and every single day I would finish up at my old church and I would start heading down to this church and I would stop by uh, Jack in the Box because I'm a huge fan of Jack in the Box and it's just so convenient it's right on the way to the church swing by pick up a Jumbo Jack two tacos and fries and I would go <laughs> oh, there's such a violent reaction to that and uh, and I'd go to the church I'd sit in the back I'd ravenously eat my food uh, and, you know, leave nothing but wrappers. And, and then I'd jump up on the stage, and I was the bass player, and I played slap, not like Gil. You see, Gil, Gil is a bass player, and I've seen him play slap bass. There's an, there's an art to what Gil does. Uh, there, was, there was no art in what I did. I would violently beat my bass to, uh, to fast music. And, and after a few minutes of that, really just after a few songs of that, I would... I would begin to to have these terrible jumbo jack like uh sized sweats coming out of the pores on my face and it was disgusting and and I would feel lethargic and sleepy and gross and greasy and 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 you know the guys in the band they would look at me and they they'd say you went to jack in the box again didn't you every week you make the same mistake and, and I would, you know, I'd just say, I'm sorry. You know, it's like, what can you do? It's so obvious. You know, and, and, and it's in every single time I would make the same mistake that this jumbo jack would be coming out of my pores and after a couple of songs it'd be look like, I'd look like I was thrown in the deep fryer with my tacos. It was just gross. Um, but it taught me this important lesson that what, that, that what you allow into you will determine what comes out of you. Right? <laughs> And then, this is, it, it makes sense. It has to make sense. I didn't just share the story because it's cute. It's not cute, it's gross. What you, what you allow into you is going to determine what comes out of you, right? And, and, and so stay away from those things that are going to corrupt you, right? Don't let them in your eyes. Don't let them in your ears. Don't let them in your mouth. Just don't do it. And, and, and you know, I think about this 
And, and maybe, maybe you don't think about it this way, but I, I hear these things and I instantly think that's legalism. How can he be up there and say this? You know, don't go near the, these things and don't go near these places. We're under grace. You know, but this isn't legalism. This is just logic. If you're filling up on junk, junk is what's going to come out of you. You know, if you're going to start looking like junk, you're going to start feeling like junk, and you're going to start acting like junk. And that's not what God wants. In this first uh, part of the Nazarite vow, he wants us to slow down, to stop and consider, what am I allowing into my body? And why am I allowing it into my body? Should it be in my body? Are these things that I should let in through my eyes? Are these things that I need to allow to come into my ears? Is this something that I should be putting into my mouth? These are the things that you are to consider when you're in this first essential step of the Nazarite vow. The second one, what is being expressed through your body? Now, in the first step, you were to, uh, you know, consider those things that, uh, that you're allowing in to influence you. And now in this second step, uh, those things that you've allowed in to influence you are going to come out as expressions. And then that's just the way that it's going to work. These things that you allow into you, they have a way of coming out of you. Just like the Jumbo Jack had a way of coming out of me. And they're not going to come out in the most pretty ways. But it's going to be a reflection of what you've been filling up on, what you've been consuming, what you've been living on. And and it was to, it was to draw you in with this expression of the Nazarite vow. Hey, he has long hair. Here's a person that's set apart for the Lord. And it made for them an instantly identifiable form of faith. That's the point of this. If you're filling up on the right stuff, it should be an instantly identifiable form of faith. And there's an easy way to take uh, the, the litmus, litmus test for yourself. Uh, you could say, well, how are you expressing yourself to the world around you? And what would your friends and coworkers say about you? And they say, oh, that person's the office gossip. You know, they'd say, well, that person's uh, the office complainer. Maybe they would say, well, that person's the office recluse. I never see him. I never hear from him. Is that any better? And tell you, all these things, are, they, they're, they're wrapped up in this picture of what the Nazarite was supposed to look like. It was supposed to be easily identifiable. Their commitment to the Lord was marked in such a way that it was visible. So how hard is it for people to find faith in us? And how far do they have to go digging to discover it in us? You know, the neat thing about this sort of thing uh, is that this isn't the kind of thing that we need to try. This isn't the type of, type of thing that we need to look for opportunities to say, okay, here it is. This is my window. Now I can be a visible Christian. And you seek it out. You hunt for it. You know, so you're in the, you're in the break room at work and someone comes in and it's like, uh, you getting coffee? Yeah, I'm getting coffee. Really? I love coffee. Yeah? I love Jesus. Let's talk about things that we love. No, don't, you don't need to manipulate conversations like that. You don't need to force it like that. It can happen very naturally and organically. When I was filling up on Jumbo Jacks, Jumbo Jacks came out of me. 
they secrete it from me. So if you're daily at home, filling up on Jesus, Mary's loving the illustration. I did it for you. Mary, <laughs> you blame her. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. I mean to create such a vivid picture. So if you're at home, right, or at church, filling up on Jesus, if you're inviting him in uh, to your daily activities, he's going to come out of you. And it's going to be natural for you. It's not something where you need to say, okay, well, I need to really buckle down and make sure that people can see me as the type of Christian that I want to be seen as. No, you just get along with Jesus. Spend some time with him. Fill up on him, and he's going to come out of you. It's going to be easily identifiable. Right? The Nazarite wasn't hiding out. He wasn't ashamed. He was putting his faith on display. Now, the third one. Finally, what influences am I allowing around my body? So as much as the last point was about the impact that I am having on the world, this one is about the impact that the world is having on me. What influences am I allowing around my body? The Nazarites were forbidden to associate with anything unclean. In Jewish culture, there's nothing more unclean than a dead body, right? I think that that's maybe something that transfers over to our culture. It's just gross and gnarly. Uh, so to be holy meant to separate yourself from anything that does not possess life. Now, that might have that might have just come out there, right? But that's actually a powerful thing to consider as a working definition for holiness. What does holiness mean? It means anything... Uh, the, or, or the, the opposite of holiness is going to be anything that does not possess life. So if you take that as a working definition, that's what was trying to be communicated to the Nazarites in this point. So what are you doing? What are you surrounding yourself with? What are you spending time with? What are you allowing uh, in your in your realm? If it's death, then you're going to start to decay. And that's the point that's made. Uh, in this uh, portion of the Nazarite vow. Now, something that uh, most people don't know about Boo, uh, Corinne, for those of you uh, that don't know Boo, is that she she is a fan of zombie movies and zombie books. Actually, she has a few zombie books. I never understood someone that would read a book about zombies. That seems interesting to me. But I actually read one, and it was it was very well written. Most people see her, and they're like, hey, sunshine and lollipops. And then they learn about uh, then they learn about the zombie thing, and they're like, "Huh, unsettling." Um, but but the truth is, the truth is that you can learn some good theology from zombie movies, right? Zombies are the Walking Dead. They're the Walking Dead. And ever since Night of the Living Dead in 1968, you've seen it. You're nodding. Fantastic movie. You know, ever since Night of the Living Dead, we've all gotten uh, important lessons about how to deal with zombies, all right? And, and it's very simple. If you see a zombie, what do you do? You run from them. You don't hang out with them. Zombies aren't your buddies, right? Because one bite from a zombie and you become just like them. You become one of them. So this is the warning in the Nazarite vow. God has called you to life. So don't get too comfortable around death. Right? Because once the dead get their teeth into you, they change you. So you need to be on guard. 
And I don't mean that we should all, you know, move to a monastery and become monks and surround ourselves by only things that are Christian and, and, you know, and, you know, don't misunderstand me. The Nazarites weren't just supposed to stay away from dead humans. They were supposed to stay away from anything that was dead. Anything that did not possess life. Now, for many of our children, and this is, this is about Samson the child, who's gonna be taking this vow, so many of the pitfalls that they're gonna face is going to be around the walking dead that they encounter and that they associate with in their school. But is that the only death that they're gonna be around? No! You'd have to completely get out of this world to get away from death. So that's not what God has called us to. There's got to be a misunderstanding there. Because, I mean, they're, they're going to be around uh, dead things, dead uh, places, dead hobbies, and dead habits. And it might be worth thinking about the fact that it's not just about vis- visible death. It's about anything that does not possess life. And you're like, well, aren't those two the same thing? They're not really. I mean, you can be in, in all ways uh, coming to church and going through the routines, and you walk in and you shuffle around in your, you know, in your fancy zombie manner, and, and you take your Bible and you open it up, and you glare at the pages, and then you shuffle out the door, and it's, it's part of your routine, and it's completely without life. And we can go to work lifeless. We can be in our family lifeless. And eight hours we sleep, and, and eight hours we work. And then, you know, for the rest of our time, uh, we eat, watch TV, and then repeat and do it all over again. And it's lifeless. It can be completely lifeless. It was to draw you in to make you consider the fact that we were called to more than this. We were called to more than a lifeless, routine existence. And it wasn't to pull you out of the world. It was to make you enjoy the life that you were given in the world so that you can live it to the full, being connected to the one who gives you life. Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, that you can have this essential connection to him, that he can bring significance and meaning into your existence, that it wouldn't just be the shuffling around as a walking dead, but as you are truly created to be a living person a living soul, how we need God to breathe life into our ordinary existence so that it could be more than the mundane and the routine. These were the essential things to consider as you went through your time of separation as a Nazarite. It was to consider what are you allowing into your body, what's being expressed through your body, and what is around your body. This is what Samson was set apart to be, a Nazarite from birth to death. We're going to continue. We're going to wrap up the chapter. I'm going to try and make it as quick as possible. Verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah rose and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass, 
what will be the boy's rule of life and his work. So how would you like us to raise this, this kid that you promised to us? What a great par- question for parents to ask, right? You know, I've, I've read Dr. Spock. I've heard Dr. Phil. They're supposed to be the experts on the subject. But you created them. You, you know them better than anybody could possibly ever know them. So how would you like me to raise this child? And so he tells him in verse 13. So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. John Corson pointed out something that I would have probably never seen in a million years on this passage when he wrote in his commentary, that when they ask for parental advice, the angel gives advice to the parents. It's an important thing to consider. They say, hey, what would you like us to do with this kid? And the angel doesn't say, well, I want you to tell the kid to do this, and I want you to tell the kid to not do that. He says, I want you to do this. He only gives advice for and to the parent. He says, I want you, mom, to stay, you know, undefiled. I want you, mom, to stay holy. Now, how can we raise this kid to be holy? The angel says, The only way is for you to be holy. So if you're going to say, okay, Samson, no wine for you, then the angel would say, then mom, you should not be drinking any wine. And that makes sense, right? If you tell your kid, you shouldn't be drinking any wine, then mom, don't drink any wine. Angel says, hey, if you're going to be telling this kid, Don't go around dead people and do dead things. Well, then you shouldn't be around dead people. You shouldn't be doing dead things. And it's a warning to parents in this passage that the only answer that the angel gives is an answer for their own life, not the life of their son. He says, I want you to show your child how to be holy. This is not something that he's going to naturally do. It's not something that he's going to naturally understand. So if you want your child to be holy, then you need to be a picture of holiness to your child. Now, this isn't to say that if your child goes their own way, that it's your fault. Right? And I think that's the way that a lot of people might take it. You know, when you're hearing this, you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, well, you know, now I'm not just a bad parent, I'm a bad Christian. Thanks a lot, because my kids are off doing their own thing, and now the blame's all on me. But no, this is what God told them to do, and this is exactly what they did. But did Samson go his own way? Did Samson choose a different path? Well, you know the story. He lived to break every single rule that his parents set out to emulate in him. To emulate for him. Everything that they wanted to instill in him. Samson lived to defy it. And nowhere will you read in the story, God say, well, you see where your son ended up? It's your fault. You're bad parents. God never does that. Right? It never happens in the story. It's not their fault. They did exactly what, 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 I, what I think 
you know, we try to do, which is to live in a manner that we want to want to guide our children. We want to show our children. We want to live out our Christianity before our children so that they have a model for Christianity. But there comes an essential time in a child's life when they have to make their own decision. They have to choose their own path. And you'll never see in Scripture that Samson ended up where he ended up because of his parents. The best that any of us could do is exactly what Samson's parents did. It's be an honest representation of a Christian. And I think that there's a word from the Lord in this for so many parents in this church that feel so condemned for the way that their children have chosen to live their lives. And they feel as if they're somehow a bad parent because their children have chosen the path of Samson. They feel condemned as a result. Well, it's my fault. If I was a better Christian, maybe he would have made a different decision. But we have in this book a model over and over again of a God that has done exactly the same thing. Right? You've seen over and over again this pattern of sin, suffering, supplication, and salvation. There is no better depiction of a Christian than God himself He's loving, he's kind, and he's constantly merciful. But Israel is constantly choosing their own path. Do we blame God for that? We say, God, it's your fault. You should have done things differently. You wouldn't blame God. And so you shouldn't blame yourself. It's your kid's decision just like it's Israel's decision, time and again. And God allows Israel to make that decision, time and again. And sometimes I wish that God would take the decision completely out of my hands and just wind me up and say, okay, you're always going to serve me and love me. And I'm sure that most parents wish that they could do that to some degree with their own children, you know? I'm just going to make sure that they always serve the Lord, always walk with the Lord, because that's what we want. Samson's parents lived out their faith before their child, but their child still went his own way. And it was his decision to make the same way that it's our decision to make, the same way that it was Israel's decision to make. This is the way that we're told to raise our children. If you want to raise holy children, then we need to be a holy example to our children. In verse uh, 15, we continue. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you, and we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must uh, offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is, seeing it is wonderful? And that's such a neat little portion we'll come back to momentarily. So Manoah took the young goat 
with the grain offering and offered it up or upon the rock to the Lord, and he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up towards heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared to, uh, or appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we've seen God. Uh, now Manoah, here's a guy that knew his Bible. Right, Exodus chapter 33, Moses is talking to God and he's saying, God, I just want one thing. Can I just ask you one thing? And God says, okay, what do you want? And, and here's a man that had seen the Red Sea part. He'd seen bread come down from heaven. Uh, here's a man that had watched an entire nation delivered from slavery to freedom. And what does this guy want? Moses says, the only thing I want is to see your face. I just want to see you, Lord. And in Exodus 33, verse 20, the Lord said, You cannot see my face because no one can see me and live. Manoah knows the story and he's terrified. Say, no, no, I just saw God and I'm going to die. And his wife says in verse 23, uh, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. You know, if God wanted to kill us, then why would he come here and say that we're going to have a baby? You know, use your brain, hubby. So she says, we're not going to die. We, don't worry. We didn't, you know, this actually, this, this was what you call a Christophany. We've talked about these a couple of times. It's one of these pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. And, and every single time I do this, there, there's always, I'm sure, at least one person that's out there and they're thinking, well, how do you know that? What evidence do you have to back that up? You can't just throw out these big words and expect me to believe you. Who are you? You're just a guy, you know, with funny hair. You know, it's like it's Christophany. That's probably not even a thing. Um, so, but in verse 18, we saw this little verse, right? He says, what's your name? And he says, why you ask me my name, seeing that it is wonderful, and maybe your Bible, if you have an NIV, says that it's beyond understanding. The Hebrew word here is pile. And pile means a thing that is so wonderful that it is beyond understanding. So it's actually a combination of both translations that's the best rendering of this word. So wonderful that it's beyond understanding. And it's like, well, that's really neat. Well, what does that mean? We still don't know that this is Jesus. Well, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 why do you ask me my name, seeing that it's wonderful? You have in Isaiah 9, 6, this verse speaking of Christ, the Messiah who is to come. And it says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a Savior is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called what? Wonderful. Pile. His name will be called Wonderful. So wonderful, it's beyond our understanding. Counselor, mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and Jesus. And you know, you can study him for a million years. You can read every book that's ever been written on him. And you might have at the conclusion of all of that, the same word to describe him. You know, the same word that you started with, the same word that we're all familiar with. You might just merely say, wonderful. So wonderful, you can never exhaust him. So wonderful, you can never completely understand him. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. He's your best friend. He's 
Pillay. He's so wonderful. He's beyond the boundaries of our own comprehension. In verse 24, so the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him in these funny places. So <laughs> next week, <laughs> next week, we're going to see what the spirit begins to do in him, where it takes him, and the life of him. So uh, I hope you're all back here next week. We're going to continue with Samson. Let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this time that you've given us, Lord, this opportunity for us to study your word. And what an interesting thing it is to consider how wonderful you are. You're wonderful to us as a model of a parent that's patient, loving, always consistent in character, but you allow us to choose whether we want to walk with you or disregard you. I pray, Lord, for each and every one of us that as we daily choose you, that we would be constantly aware of those things that we're allowing into our body and the effect that they have on us. Lord, that we'd be aware of the, the representation of you that we put out into this world. That as we're filling up on you, you would just come pouring out of us upon a world that desperately needs you, that's thirsty for you. And Lord, I pray that as we walk through this world, that we would stay off dark roads filled with death and that we would choose you to give us life that we would fill up on you, satisfied only in you, and that we would have a testimony of you that you are just truly wonderful. I thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.